In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul addresses a community of Christians, urging them to put on a new life in Christ. This action is presented like changing clothes. Believers must shed their old selves and their worldly desires, put off, and instead put on new selves reflective of their spiritual rebirth. This new self is outlined in verse 312, where Paul lists some of the virtues that Christians should exhibit as a result of their conversion, including compassion, humility, meekness, patience and kindness. Paul emphasises that these traits are not optional extras, but necessary components of Christian living, as they reflect the character and teachings of Christ himself. The passage is not just about individual transformation, it also has social implications. Paul is not simply calling on individuals to change their behaviour, but encouraging a community-wide transformation. This involves treating each other with love and respect, and living in peace and harmony. Moreover, there is a potential allusion to the image of Christ in his ministry in the list of Christian virtues provided. This implies that being a Christian means striving to emulate Christ's character and deeds in everyday life. In sum, the emphasis of Colossians 3.12 is on moral and ethical behaviour, stressing the importance of demonstrating Christian love and compassion in our actions and attitudes. The call to put on these virtues is an imperative command, indicating the essential nature of these behaviours in the Christian life. Furthermore, Dunn's analysis of Colossians 3 accentuates the appeal not just based on the event of conversion, but on the Colossians' status as God's chosen, holy and beloved. Dunn asserts that the use of individual terms and their combination are derived from the Jewish context. Practicing Jews would inherently understand terms like chosen by God, holy ones, or one beloved by God. The phrases utilised, according to Dunn, are deliberate choices with references to traditional Jewish texts, suggesting covenant and kinship with Israel. This extensive concentration on Jewish identity would not have been unnoticed by the recipients of the letter. It clearly reveals that the Gentile recipients of the letter were invited to consider themselves full participants in the people and heritage of Israel. The interpretations that followed postulated that the starting point for their practice as Christians was the recognition that they stood before God as Israel stood before God. Dunn concludes by suggesting that this assumption by uncircumcised Gentiles was likely a contentious point or provocation towards the more traditional Jewish synagogues in Colossae. This interpretation starkly places Colossians 3 in context, delving into its roots in Jewish identity and tradition, and its pronounced embrace and invitation to the Gentiles to share in this identity. The letter is positioned as an assertion and declaration of a shared spiritual heritage and stance before God. In addition, Paul encourages Gentile converts in Israel to adopt certain traits, a practice he connects with Jewish wisdom. Some of these characteristics include compassion, which he ties to the metaphorical concept of splachna, or the inward parts considered as the seat of emotions in ancient belief. The emotional intensity of the term allows its association with deep, heartfelt feelings and amplified when linked with oikthermos, meaning pity. Thus, Paul urges towards heartfelt compassion. This concept of compassion is seen in ancient Jewish texts known as the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, especially the Testament of Zebulun, whose Greek title translates to On Compassion and Mercy. This scripture uses similar language to Paul's in associating compassion with the inward parts or splanchna. Therefore, Paul affirms compassion as a deeply felt emotion, urging believers to cultivate sincere, heartfelt compassion reflecting the teachings of Jewish wisdom tradition. The encouragement of such compassion, both intimate and intense, reveals the profound emotional depth expected in the practice of faith. Further, Dunn focuses on the term Christotis, translated in English as goodness, kindness or generosity. He explains that this term, while being a human virtue outlined in 2 Corinthians 6, 6 and Galatians 5.22 is essentially viewed as a reflection or manifestation of God's goodness. He notes that it is more typical to understand it in this way. Besides, he asserts that Christotis is characteristic of the new self, which is being continuously renewed in line with the image of its creator, a concept presented in verse 3.10. Dunn highlights that Christotis primarily concerns one's relationship with others, while the following term is concerned with one's self-perception. 
Additionally, he suggests that the term's central position in the list of virtues potentially indicates its significance. It might be viewed as the most crucial virtue that also, at least partially, encompasses the other virtues listed in the chapter. Dunn acknowledges the contributions of other scholars such as Jay Zmijewski and O'Brien in understanding the context and meaning of the term Christotes in the text of Colossians and the broader context of New Testament theology. Overall, Dunn interprets Christotes as a divine characteristic that individuals should aspire to embody in their interactions with others and their personal spiritual growth. Moreover, Dunn, while examining Colossians 3, touches upon the word tapinophrosinae, this term, which appears in the chapter, seems out of place to some readers given its earlier references to practices that seem to be looked down upon, as seen in 2, 18 and 23. However, Dunn suggests that these previous mentions weren't entirely negative. The reiteration of tapinophrosony in this context likely points to the commonalities in religious practices of the Colossian groups being discussed, both of which were fundamentally Jewish in nature. Dunn underscores that in this particular context, Tapina Frosini might merely denote humility or modesty, similar to its usage in other biblical texts like Philippians 2, 3 Ephesians 4, 2 1 Peter 5, 5 and in 1 Clement. This interpretation distances the term from any association with spiritual disciplines such as fasting. Greek thought historically has a complex relationship with the term Tapina Frosini, it was often seen negatively, associated with servitude, making it difficult to be considered as a virtue in Greek culture. However, when viewed as modesty, the term is appreciated more positively, as highlighted by Nilka's take on the Colossian letter. Furthermore, Dunn observes that the Greek term for gentleness, praeotis, is often closely associated with the term for gentleness in various biblical passages. While gentleness was a virtue recognised and valued in ancient Greek culture, there was also an acknowledgement that it could be taken to an extreme. Dunn then references the Hebrew scriptures, specifically the Psalms and Sirach, to highlight their appreciation for meekness, which is akin to gentleness. Dunn cites Lindemann, who describes meekness as a power that allows individuals to address conflicts in ways that offer constructive criticism without condemnation. The gentleness of Christ mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10. One is noted as a prime example. Dunn suggests this gentleness may be a reflection of Jesus' teachings and actions, emphasising that gentleness and kindness are manifestations of the renewal in the likeness of Christ, who represents the image of God. In addition, Dunn highlights the complementary nature of the Greek terms krestotes and makrothymia. Krestotes translates to kindness, while makrothymia refers to patience. Dunn notes that these two qualities often appear together, as evident in various biblical passages like Romans 2, 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 6 and Galatians 5, 22. Further, they're referenced in Ephesians 4, 2 and 1, Clement 42, 2. Besides, Dunn underscores the idea that understanding the essence of these terms becomes clearer when they're juxtaposed against their opposites. Praetis, which means gentleness, can be best understood when contrasted with rudeness or harshness. Similarly, macrothymia is best appreciated when contrasted with feelings like resentment, revenge or wrath. Additionally, Lightfoot resonates with this view, as mentioned by Dunn. In essence, Dunn's interpretation of this section of Colossians 3 sheds light on the profound spiritual values of patience and kindness and highlights their interconnectedness within the Christian ethos. The frequent pairing of these terms in scriptural passages indicates their collective significance in leading a righteous life. The act of understanding them against their opposites further drives home the core principles they represent, ensuring believers cultivate these attributes. Next, Dunn highlights the juxtaposition between the virtues of humility and gentleness and the societal perception of them as weaknesses. These virtues, in combination, are at times viewed as characteristics of passive individuals perhaps seen as doormats in the broader context of a competitive world. However, Dunn suggests that embodying such traits requires a strength rarely showcased in our society, as exemplified by Jesus. These virtues are essential for community building, ensuring that its members genuinely care for one another, setting aside personal interests. The act of putting on virtues, as suggested in 3.12, is juxtaposed with the killing off and putting away of vices as mentioned in 3, 5 and 8. 
Dunn implies that these represent two sides of the same coin. A community that cannot adopt the virtues mentioned in 3.12 will inevitably fall into the negative behaviours outlined in 3, 5 and 3, 8. Also in Colossians 3.13, Paul and Timothy delve deeper into the quality of mutual relationships, emphasising their importance in ensuring the well-being and prosperity of any church or community. Following the emphasis on personal qualities in 3.12, they shift their attention to the dynamics of these interpersonal relationships. The exact link between this verse and the preceding one remains ambiguous. The verbs used in this verse might describe the manner in which the previously mentioned virtues are to be put on or adopted. Alternatively, the progression of thoughts might simply be sequential. However, the underlying message suggests that the true assessment of these virtues emerges when individuals within the community behave inconsiderately or without forethought. Moreover, Dunn underscores the meaning of the Greek term anekomai. This term translates to endure, bear with, or tolerate. Dunn cites its use in several other biblical texts like Mark 9.19 and 2 Corinthians 11, 1, 19. A very similar sentiment can be found in Ephesians 4, 2. The term suggests a conscious acceptance that demands a mental and emotional effort. This is because the behaviours or outlooks being endured may come across as immature or irksome. The phrase put up with aptly captures this essence of making a deliberate effort to tolerate something. Dunn believes that this kind of affirmative response mirrors the practical wisdom found in sections of the Bible like Romans 12, 9, 13, 10. He suggests that early Christian communities, being small in number, needed this wisdom to peacefully coexist in surroundings that were frequently indifferent or even antagonistic towards them. Dunn's interpretation highlights the practical and communal applications of the verse, emphasising the necessity of patience and tolerance in the face of challenges. Furthermore, Dunn maintains the demanding nature of forgiving someone who is genuinely at fault and deserving of criticism. The term momphi, unique in Biblical Greek, denotes blame or censure. The verb charizomai, repeated from Colossians 2.13, underscores the act of forgiveness. Dunn suggests that the instruction forgiving each other indicates the frequent need for forgiveness within the Christian community. Every member at some point would either require forgiveness or have to offer it. Often both parties might share the blame. Dunn posits that mutual understanding, support and acknowledgement of shared vulnerabilities are vital. Recognising and valuing one another despite individual shortcomings ensures the retention of members who might be tempted by their previous lifestyles or other religious alternatives. In addition, Colossians 3.13 discusses the model of forgiveness with reference to the Lord. The general consensus is that the Lord refers to Christ, especially given the context of the Pauline letters where, aside from Old Testament quotations, the term Kyrios always denotes Christ. This association with Christ, however, adds an uncommon dimension to Pauline theology. The idea of Christ being the one to forgive sins is rarely mentioned. In 2.13, the act of forgiveness is attributed to God, which makes this reference in 3.13 even more notable. It is possible that against the grain, Ho Kyrios might refer to God, drawing parallels to Matthew 6.12.14.15 and 18.23.35. However, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was known to forgive sins, as seen in instances like Mark 2, 5, 7 and Luke 7, 47, 49. In these references, Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness led to notable reactions. Given such traditions, it's plausible that Jesus as the Lord was perceived as the one who grants forgiveness, as also hinted at in Romans 10, 13 and 1 John 1, 9. Further, Dunn maintains the inextricable connection between the acts of forgiving others and being forgiven oneself. This perspective echoes similar sentiments found in the book of Matthew, 6.12.14.15.18.23.35. Dunn contends that the act of forgiving others is facilitated by one's personal experience of receiving forgiveness. The shocking nature of Matthew 18.23.35, a parable, highlights the profound transformation that occurs when one genuinely acknowledges and accepts forgiveness. Conversely, an unwillingness to forgive others indicates a failure to truly comprehend or accept one's own need for forgiveness, as reinforced by Matthew 6.14.15.
Dunn underscores that the strength and growth of a community are contingent upon mutual acknowledgement of wrongs committed and the genuine offering and acceptance of forgiveness. Besides, the emphasis on repeated forgiveness in scriptures like Matthew 18, 21, 22 and Luke 17, 4 accentuates this point. Additionally, in Colossians 3.14, the verse reads, Epipasin de tutoi ten agapen, hoestin sindesmos testeleo tetos. The interpretation of this passage is debated among scholars. One possible reading, influenced by the metaphor of putting on clothes in earlier verses, suggests that love can be viewed as the overarching garment that binds everything together. This interpretation is particularly driven by the preposition EPI. The Jerusalem Bible even translates this as over all these clothes, to keep them together and complete them, put on love. This is a bold extension of the metaphor, hinting that love is the force that holds everything in place. However, some issues arise with this interpretation. The term desmos can indeed refer to a binding or tie, but teleotitos, which translates to completeness or perfection, is harder to fit into the clothing metaphor. Given these complexities, it seems more plausible to assume that while the action of putting on influences the first part of the verse, the metaphor itself isn't continued in its entirety. Instead, the emphasis shifts to the paramount importance of love, as described in the latter part of the verse. Next, for Paul, love, agape, was undeniably the paramount grace. This assertion is evidenced in various scriptural passages such as Romans 13, 8.10, 1 Corinthians 13.13, 13, Galatians 5, 6.14.22. These verses intimate that Christ's act of self-sacrifice serves as the archetype for this kind of love. It's probable that these passages resonate with the teachings of Jesus as found in Mark 12.29.31. The term love aptly encapsulates the powerful virtues and intercommunity relationships inherent in Christianity as showcased in one core. 13.47. The term syndesmos, which translates as fastening or bond, elucidates love's unifying nature. Love operates like a bond, binding these virtues into a cohesive whole. This imagery mirrors 1 Clement 49, 2's depiction of love as the bond of God's love. Also, it's worth noting that in Colossians 2.19, the term syndesmos has been used to denote the sinews or ligaments of the body, reinforcing the idea that love is the essential connective tissue that binds together. It underscores that love is the sole force robust enough to unite a diverse group of individuals within a congregation. Though some might allude to the Logos as the cosmic bond, such an interpretation isn't deemed necessary. More pertinent is the Pythagorean's belief, as relayed by Simplicius, that friendship serves as the bond of all virtues. Similarly, in Aristeus 265, love and friendship are described as the bond of goodwill, However, the Christian understanding of love is seen to surpass these interpretations. Interestingly, Plato once remarked that law was the adhesive that held a city united, as in Legis 921c. In the Christian ethos, however, mere regulations wouldn't be sufficient. Only love possesses the strength to hold a community together. Moreover, Dunn points out the significance of the term teleotis, if the term doesn't reference specific attire or how it fits and is worn, it symbolises the completeness and maturity of a community characterised by agape or love being predominant. The manner in which the genitive is employed here might suggest result or purpose, though its implication might not be that explicit. A comparison is drawn with various Bible versions to decipher the essence of this construction, such as the RSV-NRSV which reads, binds everything together in perfect harmony, or the NIV which suggests imperfect unity, and the REB which offers to bind everything together and complete the whole. Notably, a connection to Matthew 5.43-48 is mentioned by several commentators. Furthermore, a similar sentiment is conveyed in Ephesians 4.13, where Christ serves as the model for such maturity and a life infused with love. In addition, a parallel is drawn with Wisdom 6.15, which reiterates the completeness of understanding when one's thoughts are focused on wisdom. Dunn's interpretation adds depth to understanding the central role of love in uniting and maturing the community. Further, Dunn highlights the importance of peace in Pauline thought, often found closely complementing the theme of love. The verse refers to the peace of Christ. Dunn acknowledges that some scholars believe this phrasing to be a sign of post-Pauline authorship, 
because in other Pauline writings, it is more common to encounter references to the peace of God, for example Philippians 4.7, or to the God of peace, for example Romans 15.33, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Dunn points out the unusual omission of the Lord Jesus Christ from the greeting in Colossians 1, 2. In most Pauline writings, a standard greeting is peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This omission in Colossians fuels some suspicions regarding the authorship of the epistle. However, Dunn seems to suggest that this distinction between the peace of God and the peace of Christ might not be significant, given the portrayal of Christ in Colossians 1, 15, 20 and 2, 9 as the embodiment of God's wisdom and fullness, the peace attributed to either Christ or God essentially conveys the same message. Besides, the mention of peace combined with in your hearts is notable because the former generally carries a communal or societal connotation in Jewish traditions, whereas the latter suggests a deep personal experience. This combination found in Colossians is quite uncommon, with Philippians 4, 7 being the closest Pauline counterpart. Heart, in biblical context, usually symbolises the core of personal experience. Yet this mention of peace shouldn't be narrowly interpreted as just an internal or individual sensation. It's linked to the peace brought by Christ, as elaborated in Colossians 1.20. The composure and assurance displayed by the Colossian Christians reflect Christ's victory and reconciliation. They were called to this peace. The term Christ here might carry a titular essence, pointing towards prophetic aspirations. In the prophet's visions, Peace for God's people was associated with the forthcoming new era. Citations from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Haggai, Zechariah, 1 Enoch, and Testament of Dan. The inner peace experienced by the Colossians was evidence of their inclusion in the Messiah's people in an era where the Messiah has already arrived. Additionally, Dunn repeats the verb braveo, which is rooted in the context of athletic contests. Initially, it translates to award a prize and later takes on the meaning of act as judge, arbiter or controller. Dunn suggests that while the general sentiment of the verse is apparent, its specific meaning can vary. For example, it can be interpreted as rule or be arbiter. Interestingly, Dunn highlights that the peace of Christ is the subject here, not you. This implies that believers don't create this peace. They let it happen, surrendering control and allowing Christ's peace to guide them. The metaphor resonates as it speaks of understanding Christ's accomplishments and the resulting inner serenity. This peace can guide believers in challenging decisions and resolving community tensions. Dunn points out that while there are times for a more assertive stance in matters of faith, in personal relationships, it's wise to seek peace, echoing Romans 14.19. Next, Dunn delves into the word kalio, which holds the meaning of a call, or summons. In common usage, this term might refer to an invitation to dine or a court summon. However, Dunn suggests that in the context of this passage, the term has a more profound meaning, akin to a royal or divine invitation. This call is from the one who has brought peace, inviting the previously embattled into the peace he has secured. Dunn sees a strong Jewish context here, especially when viewed alongside the idea of a chosen people. He references passages from Deutero-Isaiah to underline this Jewish perspective. Dunn's analysis implies that Paul and Timothy, in their writings, aim to underscore the Jewish foundation of the Christian message while spotlighting the Christian essence of the Jewish tradition. This analysis showcases how foundational Jewish teachings and understandings were, even in the face of the burgeoning Christian thought. Also, Dunn underscores the significance of the one-body concept. This concept pertains to the unity of the Church, a theme that is consistent in Pauline writings like Romans and 1 Corinthians. The emphasis is on the Church as a unified entity made up of diverse members. Dunn draws parallels between this biblical notion and the ancient idea of viewing the city or state as a body, often referred to as the body politic. This ancient perspective served to promote mutual responsibility and belonging amongst varied constituents. Dunn references historical sources, such as Menenius Agrippa's fable in Livy and writings of Epictetus, to highlight this ideology. Within the context of Colossians, Dunn believes the primary focus is on the local Colossian church, visualising it as Christ's body in Colossae, likely the house church where worship took place. 
However, the idea can also extend to the broader universal church. This unity, both local and universal, emerges from the peace of Christ and is maintained by it. Moreover, Dunn delves into the Apostle Paul and Timothy's injunction, and be thankful. He takes a closer look at the Greek adjective eucharistos, translated as thankful, highlighting that this specific term is unique in the New Testament, but frequent in inscriptions. Dunn suggests that an apt translation could be, be thankful people, emphasising that the followers of Christ should be recognised by their thankfulness. Furthermore, he underscores the Greek verb ginistha, which can mean a continuous responsibility, suggesting that being thankful is an ongoing duty for believers. Dunn identifies that thankfulness is a recurring theme in the passage, especially in verses 112 and 317. He argues that the repeated mention of this sentiment in such close proximity accentuates its significance. In addition, he highlights the interconnectedness of the ideas presented in Colossians 3.13, 15. To him, the sentiments of forgiving and loving others, having the peace of Christ, and expressing gratitude to God, are intertwined. One cannot truly exist without the others. For instance, without gratitude, the peace of Christ and love for others become unsustainable. Further, Dunn notes that the exhortations preceding this verse don't appear to directly address the immediate concerns of the Colossian believers, unlike verses 3, 1, 4. These exhortations have a timeless quality, suitable and relevant to all Christian congregations across time. Given their general nature, Dunn implies that the situation in Colossae was perhaps not extremely urgent or in a state of crisis. One standout aspect of the philosophy that attracted Colossians was the unique worship experience it offered. This form of worship seemed to include sharing experiences with angels, as mentioned in verses like 2.18 and 2.23. Therefore, it's noteworthy that the sequence of perenesis, moral exhortation in the text, culminates in a portrayal of the kind of worship that Colossian Christians ought to partake in. This portrayal seems to imply that their worship should be deeply fulfilling, the description aims to offer an experience rich enough to overshadow the allure of Jewish angel worship, making it seem less appealing in comparison. Besides, Dunn emphasises the core elements of Christian worship mentioned, the word of Christ, teaching and admonition, singing and thanksgiving. These have remained foundational components of Christian worship since its inception. Despite their importance, very few passages offer a detailed look into the earliest Christian worship practices. Some other notable references include 1 Corinthians 14.26 and Acts 2.42. However, the exact relationship between these worship elements remains unclear. It's uncertain whether they represent a structured series with the instruction clarifying the process of indwelling and singing, serving either as a medium or a reaction to it, or if they're an unstructured set, appearing in diverse combinations during different gatherings. What's evident is the paramount importance of the first clause. For individuals with a particular interest in liturgy, these specifics offer fascinating insights. It's noteworthy that there's no mention or reference to any leading figures such as prophets or teachers in this context. This could signify that worship was a communal responsibility, with everyone participating equally. Dunn further accentuates this idea of collective responsibility in his work titled Jesus in chapters 8 and 9. Additionally, Dunn discusses the phrase Ho Logos Tu Christu, which translates to the Word of Christ. While this exact phrase only appears once in the New Testament, its equivalents like the Word of the Lord can be found in other parts. Dunn affirms that this phrase can have a dual meaning. First, it can represent the Gospel, which has Christ as its central message. Secondly, it can refer to the actual teachings or words spoken by Christ himself. Dunn suggests that there's no need to limit the understanding of the phrase to just one of these interpretations. In line with Colossians 2, 6-7, it's reasonable to assume both meanings. Also, Dunn highlights that early Christian reflection wouldn't have solely focused on Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Given the available Jesus tradition at the time, early churches would have been familiar with more than just these events, and thus would have meditated upon other aspects of Christ's teachings and life as well. Moreover, Dunn dives deep into the intricacies of the original Greek text to provide nuanced insights. 
The verb oikeo, with the prefix en, asserts a deep-rooted, lasting presence, as indicated by its other uses in the Greek language. Drawing a comparison, Dunn suggests that just as residents have a more permanent status in a house than transient visitors, the word of Christ is meant to have a deep and lasting presence in believers, rather than a fleeting touch. Furthermore, the point is made that the command here is not directed at the readers to act, but rather for them to allow something to take place within them. In addition, the phrase on hymen can be interpreted as among you, hinting at the communal nature of the teaching and worship in the early Christian community in Colossae. This could imply that the word of Christ was meant to be a shared experience, enriching the community through mutual teachings and learnings during gatherings. The term plusios, richly, is seen to echo themes from earlier in the letter, underscoring the depth and abundance of the word of Christ. This richness is not just material but spiritual, intellectual and communal. However, for this richness to be fully experienced and appreciated, there must be a willing and active response from the believers. Without this engagement, the indwelling of Christ's word could be weak or ineffective, instead of the profound impact it's meant to have. Dunn's interpretation suggests that the scripture not only invites believers to internalise the word, but also to engage actively with it, making it a living experience within and among them. Further, Dunn highlights the corporate nature of sharing the word of Christ within a gathered assembly. Dunn draws attention to the text's call for believers to teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. He notes the parallel between this verse and Colossians 1.28, suggesting it is no accident. While 1.28 primarily describes the apostolic mission of spreading the gospel, Colossians 3.16 envisions this teaching and warning as a collective duty of the church members. Besides, Dunn finds it noteworthy how frequently Paul, in his writings, underscores the mutual responsibility of church members to instruct and admonish each other. The Apostle's insistence on this can be seen in various other passages, including Romans 12, 7, 15, 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and others. The phrase, with all wisdom in the text, is significant, as wisdom is a crucial component in delivering these teachings. Dunn concludes by reminding readers that such counsel is rooted in the previous descriptions of a congregation characterised by forgiveness, love and gratitude. He implies that the mutual responsibility to instruct and admonish is fostered in an environment of understanding, compassion and unity. Additionally, singing is indicated as the third core element of Christian worship, expressed through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. The relationship between this emphasis and the prior clause remains ambiguous. However, it's important to recognise the potential educational value of these hymns. Before the emergence of printed material, hymns and songs were essential tools for disseminating Christian teachings. This tradition persisted even after printing became widespread. As an example, the unique theology of Methodism can be predominantly traced back to the hymns composed by Charles Wesley. Next, the Greek term salmos originates from salo, which translates to pluck or play, a stringed instrument. Consequently, it means a song sung to the harp. This term has historically referred to David's psalms, as seen in the Septuagint, LXX, translations of the psalm titles, and in several New Testament references. Beyond the canonical psalms associated with David, there were other compositions labelled as psalms in the Jewish tradition. This is evidenced by the reference to the Psalms of Solomon from the 1st century BCE and the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly the texts 1QH and 11QPSA, which include six additional psalms. These findings illustrate that the Jewish practice of creating new psalms for worship persisted into the New Testament era. Hengel's observation sheds light on the musical aspect of these psalms. Due to the lack of a consistent syllabic structure in psalm verses, it was challenging to maintain a uniform melodic composition. Melodic patterns could only be integrated at specific points, such as the verse's beginning or end. For the rest of the fluctuating sections, a singular note was held. Psalms could vary in their structure, from brief liturgical acclamations to lengthier hymnic texts. Also, Dunn touches upon the usage of the term hymnos, translated as hymn, which historically denotes songs of praise directed at gods or heroes. Dunn cites various references where this term has been used, pointing out its association with David in texts such as 2 Chronicles 7, 6 and Nehemiah 12, 24, 46, 
47. Philo, an ancient Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, frequently used the term, implying the importance of hymns in that era. In Judaism, the act of sung praise was a critical component of worship. This significance is exemplified by accounts that discuss the restoration of the cult by Judas Maccabeus, with references found in 1 Maccabees 454 and 2 Maccabees 130. The act of singing hymns wasn't just confined to formal religious settings, but was a natural form of worship expressed by individuals and in gatherings. Examples of such instances include Mark 14.26, where singing takes place, and the references to communities like Qumran and the Therapeutae, found in Philo's De Vita Contemplativa. Moreover, Dunn maintains the universality of this practice, noting its prevalence both within the Jewish diaspora and the temple. The tradition of hymn singing was pervasive, whether it was among groups or by individuals during specific situations, such as in the Testament of Joseph or the account in Acts 16.25. Dunn cites G. Delling from TDNT 8.489, 98 for those who seek a more in-depth understanding of the topic. Furthermore, Dunn addresses the potential distinction between psalms and hymns in the New Testament, particularly given the close similarities between the two terms. One interpretation, as suggested by Lightfoot, is that psalms refers to praises originating directly from the scriptures, especially the psalms of David. In contrast, hymns might refer to compositions specific to Christianity, reminiscent of the new song from Isaiah 42, 10. Examples that come to mind include the Magnificat and the Benedictus in Luke 1. In addition, other debated references within the Pauline writings are mentioned, such as Ephesians 5.14, Philippians 2, 6, 11, Colossians 1, 15, 20, and 1 Timothy 3, 16. However, Dunn notes that it is challenging to make a definitive claim based on the descriptions provided in the text. Considering the spiritual vitality of early Christianity, it seems plausible that it would birth its own unique hymns. Further, this notion is strengthened when looking at the parallels with the Qumran community and the Therapeutae, as well as subsequent Christian renewal movements. Besides, Dunn points out that the inclusion of non-biblical hymns in Christian worship was largely uncontested until the 3rd century. Additionally, Dunn addresses the term spiritual songs, found in Colossians 3.16, pointing out that it also appears in Ephesians 5.19. Notably, this term only appears in these two instances in the New Testament. However, the word ode, translated as song, is used in the context of heavenly worship in passages such as Revelation 5, 9, 14.3 and 15.3. Dunn acknowledges that Ode is somewhat synonymous with two other terms, evident from the titles of Psalms in the Septuagint, LXX, and other biblical references like 2 Samuel 6, 5, 22, 1, 1 Maccabees 13.51 and 1 Corinthians 14.26. Moreover, Lose notes the synonymous nature of this term in his work on Colossians and Philemon. Dunn posits that the term spiritual songs probably refers to a variety of songs. If not, the authors might be redundantly using similar terms. Dunn's observation highlights the nuances in the biblical text and the potential implications of these terms in the early Christian community's worship practices. Furthermore, Dunn places emphasis on the term pneumaticize, spiritual, discussing its potential relevance to songs sung under the influence of the Spirit. Dunn suggests these could be charismatic songs or inspired songs, stemming directly from divine inspiration. The implication is drawn from the term pneumaticos and is further supported by parallels in 1 Corinthians 14.15.26. Dunn highlights that Ephesians 5.18.19 associates such spiritual singing with being filled with the Spirit. He draws a comparison to the uninhibited singing of those under the influence of alcohol as mentioned in Ephesians 5.18 and contrasts it with the Spirit's influence. The question of whether the spiritual songs mentioned in Colossians 3.16 refer to glossolalic, speaking in tongues, singing is raised. Dunn points to parallels in Acts 2, 1.4 and 1 Corinthians 14.15 that could suggest this. However, he also notes that Paul might have viewed glossolalia as a form of angelic language, which might not fit well with the context of Colossians, given its critique of angel worship in 2.18. Ultimately, Dunn suggests that the use of pneumaticos in the passage is not merely an echo of earlier Pauline themes. Instead, it points towards the continuous presence of a charismatic worship style within Pauline churches. 
This lively and spontaneous form of worship possibly included glossolalia and persisted throughout Paul's ministry. In addition, Dunn focuses on the significance of gratitude in Christian worship and expression. Dunn points out that the final clause of the verse likely underscores the importance of thankfulness. He draws attention to the term charis, which often translates to thanks in various New Testament contexts. Dunn suggests that singing as an act of worship naturally emerges from a heart full of gratitude towards God. The genuine expression of gratitude and the inspiration to worship are closely linked. Further, Dunn highlights the definite article in the verse, suggesting a potential callback to the grace mentioned earlier in 1. 6 of Colossians. He posits that the act of praising God is as much dependent on God's grace as the initial acceptance of the gospel message by believers. Besides, Dunn underscores the phrase in or with your hearts, emphasising the profundity of heartfelt worship. This suggests that true worship emanates from deep personal experiences and convictions rather than being just a superficial or rote exercise. It serves as a reminder that worship should be genuinely heartfelt and not just a mere ritualistic utterance. Dunn hints at the possibility of this being another allusion to Isaiah 29.13, underscoring the contrast between genuine heart worship and mere lip service. Additionally, Dunn's interpretation of Colossians 3.17 delves into the meaning and implications of the verse. The verse, when translated, prompts believers to ensure that everything they do, whether in speech or action, should be in the name of the Lord Jesus while expressing gratitude to God through him. Dunn reiterates that the attitude of gratitude, worship and praise advocated by this scripture is not merely an inward sentiment or exclusive to collective worship sessions. Instead, it should permeate every aspect of a Christian's life. Dunn draws attention to the repetitive nature of the verse's phrasing, emphasising everything and whatever it is, which reinforces the idea that no act or word is exempt from this directive. The connection between worship and everyday actions is central to Dunn's interpretation. He suggests that there shouldn't be any divide between the reverence one feels during worship and the spirit with which they conduct their daily affairs. Both should be consistent expressions of devotion and gratitude. Also, Dunn relates this sentiment to Romans 12, 1-2, which describes the holistic nature of worship. The spirit of worship is not just about participating in religious rituals, it's about living a life that consistently honours and expresses gratitude to God. Such a life where every action and every word reflects a heart full of worship is described as your spiritual worship. Moreover, Dunn points out that this perspective on worship and daily life isn't unique to Christianity. It has Jewish roots, evidenced by parallels in Jewish texts like Sirach 47.8 and Mishnah are both 2.12. This context underlines the universality and timelessness of the principle that life, in all its facets, should be a continuous act of worship and gratitude towards the divine. Furthermore, Dunn repeats the rootedness of early Christian understanding within the context of Israel's ancestral religion. The phrase, in the name of the Lord, mirrors similar phrasing from the Old Testament, specifically the term Beisem Yahweh. This demonstrates that the early Christians saw their actions as an extension of the Jewish faith rather than a deviation from it. Further reinforcing this connection is the title, The Lord Jesus. This title showcases the application of the term Kurios to Jesus, which implies a significant theological insight. However, Dunn clarifies that this does not mean that Jesus is supplanting or usurping Yahweh's role. Instead, the understanding is that God has chosen to share his sovereignty with Christ. This idea of shared divinity is seen in other New Testament texts like Philippians 2, 9-11 and 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6. Notably, there's a connection between 1 Corinthians 8-6 and Colossians 1-15-20, reinforcing this concept. Dunn does find it curious that the passage in Colossians leans so heavily into pan-Christology, focusing almost exclusively on Christ's role, especially considering the substantial emphasis on the Holy Spirit's role in other New Testament writings, like Romans 8 and Galatians 5. In these other texts, the Spirit is instrumental in guiding and enabling Christian behaviour, which contrasts the absence of the Spirit's mention in Colossians 3.17. In addition, Dunn discusses the significance of naming or invoking the name of Jesus in Colossians 3.17.
he underscores the cultural and historical importance of naming in the ancient Mediterranean world. Naming for these societies was not just about identification, but also reflected one's character and reputation. When early Christians identified themselves with Jesus' name, they weren't merely using a label. They were expressing a profound commitment, aligning themselves with Jesus' character, reputation and power. Dunn references the New Testament to show the varied contexts in which Jesus' name was invoked, from exorcism and healing to baptism, preaching and discipline. Some of these, like exorcism, healing and baptism, might have involved a direct calling of the name. Others, like preaching and discipline, might be more about a sense of mission or acting on behalf of Jesus' power and name. Dunn underlines that the core message is about Christians, especially the Colossian Christians, consciously acknowledging Jesus' name in every action and thought. This complete immersion in Jesus' identity and mission is contrasted with the lure of worshipping unnamed angels, as mentioned in Colossians 2.18. The takeaway is that a genuine Christian life is about doing everything with the consciousness of Jesus' commissioning and enabling. This act of acknowledging and invoking Jesus' name serves as a marker for Christians in both life and worship. Further, there's a probable allusion to the alternative worship practices of the Colossian Jews. The general advice provided concludes with an emphasis on gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This worship and lifestyle are portrayed as the optimal form of devotion that reaches God. The passage signifies that God, not Christ, is the focus of this praise, as evident in both 3.16 and 3.17. Jesus' role is underscored as a mediator, the channel through which gratitude is conveyed, rather than the reason for the thanks. Such a view of Christ aligns seamlessly with the more exalted descriptions in 1.15.20 and 2.9. This perspective does not seem to disrupt the monotheistic beliefs of the Colossian Jews. In fact, it may cater to their understanding. The message challenges the Colossian angel worship by asserting that true devotion to God the Father is rendered in the name of the Lord Jesus and through him. Last but not least, Dunn emphasises the significance of gratitude in the context of worship and discipleship. He points out how the recurring theme of thankfulness in verses 3.15.17 underscores its foundational role in a believer's life. Dunn also draws a parallel with Romans 14, 6 to highlight that the intention to express thanks to God can be a critical criterion for evaluating the acceptability of one's behaviour. This stands true even if such behaviour is condemned by fellow Christians. Gratitude thus becomes not just a virtue but also a benchmark for determining righteous conduct. In conclusion, in Colossians 3, Paul urges Christians to embrace a new life in Christ, akin to changing clothes. This transformation involves shedding worldly desires and adopting virtues like compassion, humility, meekness, patience and kindness. These virtues reflect Christ's teachings and character, emphasising the importance of moral and ethical behaviour in Christian living. Paul's message isn't just about individual transformation, but also about fostering community-wide change, emphasising love, respect, peace and harmony. Besides, Dunn's analysis of Colossians 3 highlights the Jewish context of the letter. He suggests that terms like chosen by God, holy ones or one beloved by God would resonate with practising Jews. These terms, rooted in traditional Jewish texts, imply a covenant with Israel. The Gentile recipients are thus invited to view themselves as part of Israel's heritage. This interpretation suggests that the Colossians' Christian practice began with recognising their position before God, similar to Israel's stance. This inclusion of uncircumcised Gentiles might have been contentious for traditional Jewish synagogues in Colossae. Additionally, Paul's encouragement for Gentile converts to adopt virtues is linked to Jewish wisdom. He accentuates compassion, associating it with splachna, the inward part seen as the seat of emotions in ancient belief. This deep, heartfelt compassion is also found in Jewish texts like the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Also, Dunn examines the term krestots, kindness or generosity, suggesting it reflects God's goodness. This virtue is about relationships with others and personal spiritual growth. Moreover, Dunn explores tapino frosini, humility or modesty, which, despite its negative connotations in Greek culture, is viewed positively in the Christian context. Furthermore, 
Dunn discusses the Greek terms for gentleness and patience, emphasizing their interconnectedness in Christian ethos. He highlights the juxtaposition of virtues like humility and gentleness against societal perceptions of them as weaknesses. For Dunn, these virtues require strength, as exemplified by Jesus, and are essential for community building. He also delves into the importance of mutual relationships, emphasizing patience, tolerance and forgiveness. Dunn underscores that forgiving others is facilitated by one's experience of receiving forgiveness. In addition, in Colossians 3.14, love is presented as the overarching virtue that binds everything together. For Paul, love is the paramount grace, acting as the bond that unifies virtues into a cohesive whole. Further, Dunn affirms the importance of peace in Pauline thought, often complementing the theme of love. The peace of Christ is seen as a guiding force, helping believers navigate challenging decisions and community tensions. Dunn's analysis of the term kaleo, call or summons, suggests a divine invitation, emphasizing the Jewish foundation of the Christian message. Besides, Dunn asserts the one-body concept in Pauline writings, which highlights the unity of the Church. Drawing from ancient ideas of the body politic, he underscores the Church's unity, both locally and universally, maintained by Christ's peace. Dunn also delves into the Greek nuances of the term thankful, emphasizing its recurring theme in Colossians and its interconnectedness with forgiveness, love and peace. Additionally, Dunn suggests that the exhortations in Colossians are timeless, hinting that the Colossian church wasn't in crisis. He notes the allure of a unique worship experience in Colossae, which involved interactions with angels. Dunn highlights core elements of Christian worship, the word of Christ, teaching, singing and thanksgiving. He discusses the communal nature of early Christian worship, emphasizing collective responsibility. Also, Dunn explores the phrase, the word of Christ, suggesting it can refer to both the gospel message and Christ's teachings. He delves into the Greek text, emphasizing the deep-rooted presence of Christ's word in believers and its communal nature. Moreover, Dunn underscores the corporate nature of sharing the word, emphasizing mutual teaching and admonition. Furthermore, singing is highlighted as a core worship element, with Dunn discussing the educational value of hymns and the historical context of psalms and hymns. He touches upon the term spiritual songs, suggesting they might be charismatic or inspired songs. Dunn highlights the significance of gratitude in worship, suggesting that true worship emerges from a heart full of gratitude. Lastly, Dunn's interpretation of Colossians 3.17 suggests that Christian life should be a continuous act of worship and gratitude. He indicates the importance of naming or invoking Jesus' name, reflecting a profound commitment. Dunn concludes by highlighting gratitude's foundational role in a believer's life, serving as a benchmark for righteous conduct.